Yo, yo, yo. What is going on, everyone? Happy Sunday and 4th of July Eve. Hope everyone has had an amazing weekend so far. Awesome, awesome. Where's everybody tuning in from? Anybody out on a trip? Anyone on, uh, you know, maybe a staycation, a vacation, tuning in uh, to Sunday service? I'm curious. Those asking how my Sunday is. My Sunday was excellent. Spent some time at our office this morning and getting uh, just re you know, redesigning some decorations that we're going to do some motivational art and things that we're going to do over there. So that and ate a bunch of good food today. So it was a good day. Oh, some people are on staycation. Some, some people are like, I'm in Florida. I'm in North Carolina. I'm in Portland, Oregon on staycation. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, Appreciate you guys taking your Sunday evening to tune in with me this evening before the 4th. Happy Sunday, everyone. All right, so for those of you tuning in for the first time, welcome to Sunday Service. Sunday Service was created by myself and my business partner, Pace Morby. We created this almost three years. I mean, I think it's been three years now. Um, where this started out is just literally a conference call of investors kept asking Pace and myself, hey, you know, we have questions. What are you guys doing in your business? What are you seeing that's working? What are you seeing that's not working? And so we figured, you know what, why don't we just start talking about it? And so that's where Sunday Service was born on a conference call to then Instagram Live to now we have all this uh, fancy system, all these fancy systems with StreamYard and YouTube and Facebook streaming. And, uh, you know, we're, we're super excited to, to, to continue be, you know, to continually be doing this podcast for you. And if you're tuning in for the first time, our goal is to continuously be sharing information that we're learning ourselves as we are always in a state of learning and gaining new knowledge ourselves. And we're practitioners of what we do, uh, meaning we're buying deals, we're flipping deals, we're renting deals, we're doing seller finance, we're doing sub twos, we're doing that, we're doing the thing. So, um, you know, our, our hope is that we can share some nuggets with you on these Sunday services. So you can go and take some nuggets, bring them back to your business, add those as tools to your tool belt, and so you can become an even more successful, you know, real estate investor. Yes, but you know, just overall, uh, business is our goal. So we're super happy to continue doing Sundays. And tonight, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about why it is important to be utilizing creative finance in your real estate investing business, and especially with the changes that are occurring right now in the US in the housing market, why this is becoming more important more than ever in 2022. So that is what we're gonna be talking about tonight, everybody. See so many, so many comments here. Yes, yeah, super happy 
Michelle says, this is my first time here. Well, I hope that uh, the value that you will get this evening will be amazing and you know you'll be able to take some nuggets something that i always tell uh you know whether we're do, you know speaking in person or you know we're speaking online is when you're listening in to whether it's you know pace or myself on whether it's sunday service or in other formats part of the role of you know uh getting educated is for you to you know be listening in for things that okay i I can utilize those things, but maybe some of those things don't work for my particular situation. So while, you know, we're talking on these podcasts and we talk on our YouTube channels and in all the different forms that we talk in, when you're getting educated, it's listening in for those nuggets that you can take and then go take action on immediately. Because sometimes people say, well, I'm not really at that point yet. Well, maybe that point wasn't for you then, right? So taking the things that are for where you're at right now and implementing those things. And then, you know, listening to the other things that sound really cool and that are good opportunities for you to learn something and be able to do something with later, but just setting them to the side and taking action on them when you get more to that point in your business. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in tonight around creative finance. Let's see. Ooh, I we already got a great question. This is going to lead right into to the topic tonight. Kathleen says, Cody, looks like your audio is fixed. Thank goodness. I am uh, super happy to hear that the audio is crispy, crispy, crispy. That's good. That's good. I'm going to take a quick sip and then I'm going to ask this question that Abraham asked and then we're going to dive in. <clears throat> All right. So Abraham Santana says, is creative getting more traction these days or have you always been heavier weighted being that you're pros at it? So Let's talk about this, right? So creative financing can be multiple things, right? So there's subject to, which is essentially where you're purchasing a property subject to the existing mortgage. So I'm going in, I'm buying a property where my name is going to be on the title. If you've seen Captain Phillips, Phillips, you're looking at the homeowner. It's like, I am, I am the captain now. Like I am the homeowner now, even though the debt is going to stay in that, uh, you know, in that seller's name, that's buying it subject to, um, when you're buying on a seller carry, that's essentially purchasing it directly from the seller where maybe they own the property free and clear. And you say, Hey, let me give you like 20 grand. I'll, I'll give you installment payments. I'll pay you, you know, 1200 bucks a month for the next 30 years, seller carry. And that could be formatted in a million different ways, but that's essentially it. And then you have a little bit of a mix of those, which is called a hybrid, which is where you have a subject to there's an existing mortgage in place. You buy it, but you also have a seller carried portion. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details specifically right the second on why or why that is not, um, you know, the, the right strategy for every deal. But let's see, um, but I just wanted to mention that. Um, so the thing that you guys can do if you're listening for the first time and you're like, yo, I don't know what subject two is. I don't know what seller carries really are. You can go to Pace Morby's YouTube afterwards. You can go to my YouTube channel afterwards. 
and there's videos explaining how those strategies work specifically um, to get a little bit more into detail. So we'll save that for the YouTube videos. Uh, but when we're actually looking at, um, you know, the question that Abraham asked, which is, are creative finance deals getting more traction these days? Uh, or have you always been heavier weighted towards doing these types of deals? So I will say, Abraham, uh, because we are experts at doing these types of deals, we definitely are more, more prone to doing these types of deals. And the reason being isn't just because, yes, just because we know how to do it doesn't mean that's we're just necessarily we have to do it right. Um, the the reason that we are more weighted to them is because it's we have more options, right? Like, you know, when you're meeting with a seller, when you're talking with the seller, and you're trying to negotiate a deal, and if your cash option just doesn't work, and that's all you know how to do, that there's no deal there. So, for us. We look at creative finance is it's another tool in the tool belt. Like imagine like you're walking into, you know, a, a seller's house. Right. And like, you know, imagine I'm a contractor, you know, I'm, a, I'm a handyman and I, I walk into a house and like, you know, I have a hammer and, and my tool belt and I walk in and they're like, I need you to do this project and it involves a screwdriver. And you're like, Oh, I'm out. I only got a hammer. I can't help you here. See ya. Like that, that's the equivalent of, you know, what you're doing when you're only going after properties to purchase them with cash. When you open up for a creative finance option, you're adding tools to your tool belt. You have your hammer for your cash transactions. You have your screwdriver for your, for your sub two deals. You have, um, your pliers for your seller finance. Like, you know, whatever, whatever tools that you need to do that job, right? Like that's what creative finance allows you to do. So when your question, Abraham, is around, are we more weighted to it? It's not that we're more weighted to it. It's just that we are always looking on how can we make a deal work? And especially now more than ever, like understanding this, that for everybody listening, we, it's not been confirmed yet, but we are looking at in the United States at being in a recession. We had negative GDP quarter one, quarter twos expected when they announced later this month that we'll have had negative GDP, which essentially to be in a recession, you need two quarters in a row of negative GDP, gross domestic product, right? So um, what starts to happen when we have that, you know, that negative growth is there's consumers start to get scared, right? So you have these homeowners that are in this position of like, oh my gosh, like, is this the top of the market? Maybe I should sell. Maybe, maybe, you know, this isn't the right time, right? Um, and then you have, you know, like looking at us, for example, as investors, we want to buy properties at cash flow. We don't really give a dang on whether or not we're getting tons of equity in a property, if we're buying it on subject to or seller finance, what we really care about are what are the terms? Let's say if the property can rent for $2,000 a month and I'm buying the property at retail value, but the my payment on the property is say 13 or $1,400 a month, I'd buy that deal. We do buy those deals because 
we're going to be paying down the principal, the interest. We're going to be getting cash flow from day one when we buy the property. And we're providing, of course, you know, more solutions for the sellers. Oh, this is funny. I Fioma is so color matching Cody hat, shirt, mic, and thermos. All I didn't really even notice that. But shout out to the I, I like all the, the dark colors, I guess. All right, let me, I'm sure there's probably some questions that popped up as I was going through that. Um, yeah, Brian said cash flow is the first term. That is the number one thing when it comes to buying properties in general for a long-term hold. Like you, you don't want to get into gator properties, right? Like, and that's, that's something that's your negative cash flowing. Say your rents are... 2000 a month and your mortgage is 2100 but you bought it just to buy it like that that would be an example of a don't buy that deal like you want to be buying deals where the numbers actually make sense which for us it's when the deal cash flows that's what we want to be looking at Let's see i saw here what uh, vegas gabe aren't aren't we technically in a recession by definition um, two negative quarters of GDP is, uh, the technical, I guess, of what defines as a recession. Awesome. Whoop. Popped out there. Sorry about that gang. We are back. Ooh, this is a great one. Let's talk about this because people are probably going to wonder the same thing. Bam, let's let's talk about this. So um, Greater Equity Offers says, what if the value on your properties drop below what you picked it up for sub two and then the bank calls the notes due? Now, this is a great question. So... I am. I will not on this podcast tonight answer the question of what do you do if a bank calls a no uh, a sub two. <laughs> um, it, it, if a bank calls a note due on a sub two, because Pace has probably ten different YouTube videos on that, and you can get a way more in depth answer specifically there. So we're not going to go into that, but I will talk about this specific question. So. The answer of what if the value in the property drops below uh, what you picked it up for sub two and the bank calls a note due. So here's what you do is you make sure that you're buying the property right. And if you're, if you're nervous about it happening, greater equity offers, maybe you don't do buy it subject to maybe you buy deals, seller carries, if that's something you're worried about, right? Like that, Properties getting called, you know, the due on sale clause called happens so infrequently that hundreds of deals that Pace and I have done together, we've had one be called due. And the reason why was because it was a local bank. It was a bank that literally their president of the bank worked in the branch that the loan was originated in. And they have such a small book of loans that they check in and see what's going on with their loans. Big banks, they're not doing that. So that's something that it's just a risk tolerance thing. Um, 
So that's just something that you have to be thinking about when you're going to be buying. Um, Josh Corby asks, hey, Cody, what percentage of the rent do you put aside per month for caution? So essentially, uh, we do based off of like a percentage. So for example, um, you know, for, for all of our properties, right? Like we look at things such as vacancy rate, which is, you know, you have the property rented out, it's rented out for a year, say that tenant moves out and it's vacant for a month. You have to account for that one month of lost income, right? So like, that's something you have to be thinking about. So vacancy rate is important. You have your capital CapEx, capital expenditures. So the roof needs some work while you own the property. Say the AC unit goes out. Say you have a leak and you have to fix some plumbing work, right? Like those are capital expenditures. So the percentages that we use in our business is on capital expenditures, we have 3%. And that's off of whatever the, uh, you know, what the the rent is that we that we're collecting on on an annual basis. So, you know, uh, we do 3% for that. And then we do 2% for the vacancy factor. So just based on how long we expect it to be vacant. Um, and so that's essentially what we have being set aside every single month for our properties so that there is reserves there. So if something does happen, and there's work that needs to be done to any of them, or it sits vacant a little bit longer, we have capital set aside. So that is something that again, it's also going to depend, Josh, on the age of the properties and the in in the area. Like for example, if you bought a property that was built in 2015, and it's in like an A class neighborhood, like the schools are the best in the city, the best in the zip code. It was newly remodeled in the last couple of years. It's highly desirable to live there. It's in great condition. You've already got it inspected and everything's pristine and perfect. You may not have issues or it may rent out significantly faster than if it's in a different area. So that's something to keep in mind on the vacancy. And then the capital expenditures on that 2015 build are going to be different than if you're buying, you know, say you're buying properties on the East Coast and you know, your rental you're buying was built in 1927 and the plumbing hasn't been fixed since maybe the mid 1900s, right? Like that's a property that you're probably going to have to set aside a little bit more for. So the, the proper answer for that, Josh, and for anybody that's wondering on like how much you should be setting aside for your reserves for like vacancy rate and for the capital expenditures is it's going to be market dependent. So I would say connecting with a local investor. Um, Pace has sub two students literally all over the country. So if you are looking to connect with some experts, you can jump into um, the Creative Finance with Pace Morby Facebook group and network, find some sub two students, find out what market that, you know, find students that are in your market, get some insight on that. But they'll be able to give you a better idea for those that own already in your market of what those expenses are going to are going to look like and what those vacancy rates are going to look like cuz obviously the vacancy rates and expend you know capex in phoenix arizona is going to be different than like detroit michigan or um you know new jersey right like there's going to be variances in that so that's just something to keep in mind uh i i like this question here from randall yamoaka uh can you talk about using creative finance for pre foreclosures so this is, listen to this. This is probably, if not the best, it's definitely up there with the best 
types of sellers to be able to work creative finance terms with pre-foreclosures. Why is this? Well, let's look at the avatar of a pre-foreclosure. A pre-foreclosure is somebody that they're not making their mortgage payments. They have financial distress. They're having distress in their life and they're, they need a different, they need a solution to that distress. And so a lot of times on pre-foreclosures, there's only a few options they have. Like, let's talk through just a couple of them. So a loan modification with the bank. And if the bank already didn't approve it, that's off the table. They can list the property, which sometimes uh, the pre-foreclosure may be in such bad condition that they can't list it. So maybe they can't list the property or they don't have enough time before their foreclosure date comes up. Another option that they have is they can get a personal loan from family or friends. If they can't do that, obviously that's off the table. Um, another option is they could sell it for cash, right? Like if they have enough equity in it, they could sell it for a discounted price to get out of the property and be able to move on with their life to a cash investor like yourself. Um, or you have another option, which is of course, um, and, uh, which is of course creative finance. And so that could be, you know, a subject too. So the reason that this works really well, Randall and, and everyone listening is, Creative uh, subject to specifically is these sellers don't have a lot of options. So you get to be the one that goes and shows them that there is another option for them. And the great news is too, is when you buy a property sub two and then you're making their payments on their behalf for months and maybe years to come is you're helping re rebuild their credit because their loan is still tied to that. So you coming in and buying it, you reinstate their loan, you get it caught up current and you make those payments for months or years. You're literally helping rebuild their credit to get them in a better spot than they were versus losing their house. So pre-foreclosures are, in my opinion, the best people to be able to help and utilize creative finance with when it comes to subject two, because you are one of very few options that they have. And it has good long-term benefits for them where you're getting their credit, you know, fixed essentially by you making those payments, reinstating that loan. So those are excellent opportunities to be able to help those people. Ooh, Mel Jones says, have you ever been asked to show a reserve when you do seller financing? So Pace and I have only been asked one time to ever show reserves to a seller when we did a seller finance deal. And we've done hundreds of them. And the one time that we ever got asked it, it was actually like two weeks ago because it was a seller that had just been burned by two different wholesalers. They locked up the property, couldn't sell it, tried to price drop them, canceled. Another investor locks it up, can't sell it, tries to price drop them, pisses the seller off beyond belief, they cancel. Seller, right, you know, in the right, is very upset. They're pissed off. They're like, I, we just went through two investors that were full of crap. So by the time that this deal gets put across and, uh, and me, it's, it's our team, the seller is like, I'm not even going to talk to you unless you show me that you have the funds to perform on this deal. And and in this case, uh, all they really cared about, like we literally like showed on, like we logged into the Chase app on the phone, like, 
here you go. And the lady's like, well, why don't you buy it cash then if you can pay cash? And we're like, well, that would be stupid. If we buy your property cash, then we can't go and get more seller finance opportunities. We were, we're in the business of buying multiple properties. We're not in the business of buying one property cash and then having to you know, wait until we could buy another property cash. Like that's not the business that we're in. So um, Mel, it doesn't happen very often. Literally, that was the only time we've ever had it happen. And it wasn't even the highest priced property we've seller financed. Like we've seller fine. We had a seller last year, seller finance us six of her properties. We showed no nada to them. No credit pull, no reserve showing, no cash, you know, anything. There was nothing. Just our negotiations. So does that mean that it won't happen to you? It could. I mean, if you're moving with confidence in the way that you're trying to structure the deal, it doesn't really happen that often. I mean, maybe if you're trying to finance like a $10 million deal, maybe, but you know, generally like these are, you know, single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, townhomes, condos, manufactured homes, right? So like generally that's not something that we have uh, issues with. Oh, so many good questions coming down here. My goodness. Ooh, I'm going to answer this one quickly because I want to get try to get through as many questions specifically as I can. Emily says, if we're doing creative finance or seller finance, does the seller have to pay taxes on the property still? Who's paying the taxes? So I'm just going to answer that part of your question so we can get through more questions, Emily. Um, as a seller finance, think about it like this. If you think about you're buying a car, you go to your local Ford dealership and they try to get you a loan with Bank of America, um, Chase, um, your local credit union. None of them will finance you. And so you say, dang it, I can't buy a car. So then the car dealer says, well, what if we, you know, offered seller financing and you became the buyer and we became the bank and you say, great, that sounds awesome. And you buy the car. You're going to be the one that you are the technical owner of the car. The dealer in that situation would be the owner of the debt, the note, the basically the fancy IOU where the dealer has a note that you sign that says, hey, I will pay you back this, you know, $20,000 and you as the technical owner, you pay the tax on that car. A little bit different example, obviously, with the car, because there's just that, you know, maybe the one time sales tax that you're paying up front. Um, but with the house, you as the buyer, you own the property. So, Emily, when you buy the property on seller finance, you are the one on the title of the property. So you are the one that's responsible for the taxes. You're responsible for the homeowner's insurance. You're responsible for those things as the buyer. Blyce says, do you, do you slash have you lived in a creative home? Pace and I have both lived in a property and our other business partner, Matt Beard, have all lived in properties that we bought subject to. I don't currently live in one that um, now, the property I live in now, we bought cash last year to fix and flip. And then I saw it and I'm like, I could live there, you know, I'll, you know, get it fixed up. I'll refinance it once the renovations are done and then I'll move in. 
And so that's what I did with this property. But the last property that uh, I lived in, that was a house. That one I bought subject to. The last house Pace lived in before he bought his mansion, uh, he bought subject to as well. And then the property Pace lives in now, he bought as a, on a hybrid. He uh, took over the note sub two. And then he had as a seller finance note with the, the uh, previous seller as well. So uh, yes, you could definitely live in the homes that you buy on creative terms. <laughs> Some good questions. Good questions tonight. Um, we're you know we're about four hundred people on here tonight. Again, you know, happy Sunday. Um, I, I been spending some time this evening. You know, getting better. You know, mastering your craft at July tomorrow. Um, you know, I, I'm super grateful to you know live in this country and um, you know for for the sacrifices you know that people make every day for us to live in this great country. And so. Um, I'm super grateful. I mean, uh, I'm just happy to be here. So I appreciate you guys spending this, this evening uh, with me as well. All right. Seeing what other questions we have here. And again, I'm trying to keep it specific. So if you're if you're posting a question and you're like, Cody's not answering my question. It's because I'm trying to keep it on the topic of creative finance and specifically around, um, you know, why it's important to implement this into your business. So here's a question from Brian. What happens if you do a seller finance and pay 100 to 200K over Zillow and that market starts to decline that next year? Um, Brian, that is called that sucks but if it cash flows still you could probably write it out <clears throat> but how long are you going to write it out for um pace sometimes makes that you know thing of like it doesn't matter what the purchase price is as long as it cash flows like he says that to make a point but like yes there is a stupid amount to overpay like you don't pay, overpay you know literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands over a property that may be worth say two hundred thousand dollars right like that's just it's not smart to do um, the point is, you know, if you're buying a property today that's worth $200,000 and you buy it for $200,000, but you set up the terms like the seller finance, for example, where say you're paying $1,200 a month for it, but you can rent it for $1,800 to $2,000 a month right now and the years coming forward and the property goes down to say $175 or $150, yes, you're now in a little bit negative equity situation but you're still positive cash flowing. You're still getting the benefits of owning real estate and getting tax benefits while you own that property on top of the cash flow. So it's more about the terms that you set than it is the price that you pay. But of course, the price does matter. It's just the point is, you know, the, the terms matter more than the price specifically does. Blythe says, what is the max down payment you consider for a 250K home? Um, if it's a seller finance or sub two, I mean, I'd ideally try to do like 15K, 20K, 25K. Um, but if the deal makes sense and, you know, could cash flow pretty well, like maybe I'd do 35 or 40. It really just depends on like how well the deal is going to cash flow.
Kyle. Cody sounding crispy with that new new. Hey, you know, we're getting we're getting it figured out. You know, I don't I don't have that production level of pace yet, but you know, we got we got some lights going in the back. I got this, you know, crispy camera that I don't know how to work, but it's up there and it's doing its thing and it's looking at me. So we're here. The sound is good. I'm I'm just here to share the information and you know, hadn't cared as much over the, the past couple of years the quality as far as like my setup, um, because I know the information is, is what's helpful for people, but having, having the, the, the setup is, you know, it's, it's nice. It, it does look nice. So getting there. Dang, lots of questions, guys. <laughs> Everyone raise a glass when Cody does. So this is water and I'm getting hydrated um, tonight because it is very hot in Arizona. It's like 110 today. Ooh. So many. All right. So um, I just want to touch on to I'm, I'm going to I'm just reading through the, these the, the comments here, but. I do want to touch on uh, as we're going into, you know, this this time of, uh, you know, maybe some uncertainty where there's, you know, we're probably entering into a recession. Interest rates have doubled and a lot of markets like Arizona, for example, we went from 4000 homes for sale in March of this year to almost 16,000, so almost 4x the amount of homes available for sale. Obviously, there's, you know, could should be some concern of like, okay, well, what's going on, right? So what we have to look at as investors is, first of all, first of all, so many people, all the last, you know, years and years that have passed have been saying, I really want the market to change so I can get good deals. And those same people that said that, are now going to be the ones that said, I don't know, there's uncertainty in the market, so I don't want to buy any deals right now. Don't be that person. It's about getting smart around the deals. Like, Here's a couple things that, that Pace and I have changed in our business is on fix and flips. So just a general rule of thumb, like for, for Pace and I, we would buy fix and flips in Arizona as long as we would be able to make about 10% of what the sales price of the property was. So simple math. If we would sell a property for $400,000, we want to make $40,000. That was our, our metric. Now, where the market is starting to change, prices have not began to go down. But in the nature of being conservative, on any fix and flips right now, we're looking for a minimum of 15% to upwards of 20%. So that same deal that... We, if, if it sold for $400,000, we'd want to be making, you know, anywhere from sixty dollars to $80,000 now. And the reason that we underwrite it that way now is because if we buy a deal and that if the market does shift as we own it, say the market goes down 5%, which would be a pretty significant drop over a couple months of owning a property, which is unlikely but in the nature of being conservative, that is something that we've done so that we're buying deals that are great deals, not good deals. We don't want good deals right now. We want great deals. So that's our criteria that we've changed on our fix and flips. Um, and will we miss some opportunities that are probably good? 
Sure, we will. Will other people make money on them? Sure. But we're not looking to just, you know, be desperate for good deals. We want great deals right now. And then when it comes to our uh, rental properties that we're buying, we've transitioned. We're not doing as many Burr properties. So for those that may not, you know, know the buzz term Burr, it's when you buy a property, you renovate the property, you put a renter in the property, then you go and refinance the property into long-term debt, and then you repeat the process. That's the Burr strategy. So um, we're not doing any more of those right now. We're only going to be buying deals creatively. And why is that? Well, rates suck. I mean, if you go try and get an investor rate right now for 30 years, your rate's going to be, you know, 7%, maybe a little bit under that, maybe upwards of 8%, 8.5%, depending on the lender you're using. So for us, it's just not that appealing. Can you make deals still cash flow and work at those interest rates? Yes. Are we interested in doing that? No. So we'd rather be going after the seller finance deals where we get to be the ones that negotiate with the seller on the terms. Will every seller be okay to do this? No. Will every seller give you the terms that you want? No. Are there deals to be had out there where you can get the terms that you want and there are sellers that are willing and able to do this? Yes. So those are the people that we want to be talking to. Those are the people we're trying to do deals with. And so that's what we're focusing on is those seller finance and sub two opportunities as we go through this year. Let's see. Woo. Abraham says, my burr is still cash flow at 8% interest. That's great. Um, it's very challenging to do that in Arizona. If you're in Arizona, bless your heart because uh, we aren't finding those types of deals right now. All right. Yeah, I like that, Abraham. I'm, I'm selling good deals and flipping great deals myself. Yeah, that, that's what we're doing. We'll just wholesale the stuff that we don't want. Um, and so that's that's really it. We just, you know, we're trying to be conservative. We aren't trying to, you know, get rich off every deal. We're trying to, you know, consistently grow our income, consistently grow our net worth. And we have employees and things to be, you know, concerned about and take care of at our companies. So that's that's where we choose to stay in the in the belief around is taking care of our teams too. And part of that is being good stewards and making good financial decisions. I love this. Goodman Anthony Goodman says the deal of a lifetime comes around once a day. <laughs> it's so true. It's so so true. You just have to know what you're looking at. And Vegas Gabe says, good deals are always available. You just need the right exit and price accordingly. That's it. Oh, so good. <coughs> uh, Phoenix Fish says, still a seller's market if your house is in great shape. In Arizona, um, I would definitely agree. Um, but it's getting, you know, it's, it's changing. And I know this because we fix and flip and we have properties that we're still listing and reselling right now. Um, it, it's the difference is right now that we're seeing is first of all, we only sell, we, we only flip properties in the median price point. So like whatever the median price of a house is in Arizona, that's the price point we're at or under. We don't touch anything above that. We don't mess with any luxury stuff. We want to be where the most amount of buyers are. 
Um, and still even on some of our properties, we've started to notice like if we would list a property on a Thursday, which is when we list our fix and flips, um, that we would let it go through the weekend. And by, you know, over Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we would, you know, the last couple of years get, you know, 10, 15 offers every weekend, every time we'd list a fix and flip, which is great. Now we're still selling them, but instead of like 10 offers, it's like three or four offers or two offers. So that's what we're seeing. And so we're still getting good terms and we're still selling our deals, but it's just getting a little bit more scarce on the buyers. Like buyers are getting more skittish um, because of what's uh, changing in the market. And then a lot of buyers are just priced out. You know, if somebody had a 3% interest rate three months ago, and now they're getting quoted at five and a half upwards of 6% based on their credit, they're not a buyer anymore in this in in the market. So that uh, that happening is obviously going to reduce that uh, that buyer pool. Let's see. Freddie says, "Are you seeing flippers stay away from rehabs where you go down to the studs and replace everything?" No, we we do those deals. We'll go down to the studs and replace everything. Right now, those deals need to be great because there's a greater risk. There is, you know, a greater amount of time that that project's going to take. Like generally right now, we're only buying projects that are great deals and that we could be in and out of within about four months because it's not so long that the market can shift so drastically in just a matter of a couple months that we're, that we're worried about those projects. So that's, that's what we're doing. Travis says, as a new investor, if I don't have the money for the entry fee and the down payment, how should I go about it? I'd like to start acquiring property, but lack the large funds. So a couple things you could do, Travis. Um, one is you could find a partner, find somebody that is a, a cash partner and you, you are the hustle. They are the money. You go find the, you do the marketing, you find the deal, you get the deal under contract, you bring it to your cash partner and say, yo, I got this deal. You want to be a part of it with me? And you just got to bring all the money. And that could be a strategy that you use. Don't be scared of giving up part of your deal, especially when you're getting started. That's something you could do. That's what I did when I first started fix and flipping. I didn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars when I first started fix and flipping. So I gave away half the flips with people that had the money. And over time, obviously, I changed that. But like, you know, that's something you could do. Um, another thing you could do is instead of just getting those, uh, you know, deals done immediately, get those good deals and wholesale them to raise capital to then be able to fund those. Like you only have so many options and that, you know, it's either sell those, you know, sell those deals that you're getting to other investors, make a wholesale fee to put that money in your pocket to then be able to fund your next deals. Um, essentially how Pace and I, you know, built our business together was we wholesaled to get cash. Once we had a bunch of cash, we started fixing and flipping. Um, we raised money to do fix and flips too, but we also wanted cash because conservative Cody over here likes to have cash to be doing these projects. Um, so we wholesaled to you know, get money. We started fix and flipping, getting chunks of money. And then with those chunks of money, we started buying rentals, you know, via the Burr strategy, via uh, subject to seller carries. So that's what we did with our strategy. Um, and it's, it's kind of like that, you know, the evolution of like a caveman, you know, from like, 
evolutionary days to like a walking man, right? It's like, you know, starting investor, like wholesaler to fix and flipper to rent, you know, rental property holder. Um, obviously you don't have to follow that exact model, but that that's what we did and it worked really well for us. And, you know, we're very versatile in, in the way that we know how to do business and structure and put together deals. Um, but that's uh that's what we did. We, you know, just had to had to get the money before we could, you know, get those holds. Mm. Oh, here we go. Emily says, would you prospect your cash buyers to ask about becoming a partner? Yeah, why not? I'll tell you this. If you have a deal in anywhere, any state or not anywhere, uh, any red state, meaning like their views of their state are more like landlord friendly generally. Um, if you're in a state where it's landlord friendly and the property could be a great Airbnb and you reached out to me and you said, yo, I got this deal and I looked at it and I'm like, that's an amazing deal. And there just need to be funds brought to the deal. We could structure a partner deal out on that deal. A hundred percent. So yes, there would be people in your local market that would do that exact same thing. So that's the, uh, you know, that's the thing that you can do. Um, you know, how do you find cash partners? I mean, if you go to any local real estate meetup and you start talking to people, you'll find them literally just go and find the local real estate meetups in your area, Emily, or for anyone else listening. If you find a deal, cash will find you. You just go around to enough people and say, I have this deal. I'm looking for someone to be a cash partner on this deal. And you talk to enough people, somebody will want to bring the money to that deal. Fernando says, Cody, with ideal interest rate on a creative deal being 0%, what's, excuse me, um, had some Indian foods, got my, uh, Heartburn going. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, with the ideal interest rate on a creative finance deal being 0%, what's the highest interest rate you'd consider to be a good deal interest-wise? So, Fernando, it's more about what is my monthly payment going to be in accordance to what rent rates are. That's what's going to cause me to, to look at that. Generally, I want a net of $350 a month per property between what I'm paying and then like the total cost of everything, CapEx, vacancy and all of that between what I'm collecting and rent. So it's more about that um, than it is just about, you know, the interest rate. Like we have some deals at principal only 0% interest. We have some at 2%, some at 3%, some at four. We have a couple of sellers we did 5% with, which I don't care as long as the deal still works and it cash flows well. We have long-term debt at that 5%. I'm not opposed to doing those types of deals. Uh, Sharita says financial friends network has plenty of private lenders like that. Vice says, if I bring you a deal, would you bring cash outside of AZ only if it's a creative finance deal and it could be potentially an Airbnb, otherwise not interested. Liliana says, any advice on what I could do at $20,000? Um, so my general thing that I tell most people and like Pace might have a different opinion and maybe some other people have different opinions. But if you have $20,000, 
the thing that I would do would be investing in yourself and investing in your business, not be trying to invest in deals. Like I would be trying to figure out how do I become a person that instead of having $20,000 in savings that I can multiply that and turn that into a hundred thousand, 150 and 200,000, not meaning like invest $20,000 into a deal that then turns it into a hundred. I mean, how do you take 20,000, maybe you spend a couple thousand dollars on some coaching, some mentorship to make your skill level, your knowledge up here, go to a higher level so that you can gain some skills that can, you know, get you larger chunks of cash. Like that's what I would do. Um, until you have, you know, a hundred grand plus, it's like, that's where I tell, you know, most people that they should be trying to, you know, spend, uh, you know, some of their money, like don't go and blow all 20 grand on like, you know, education. Like that's, I wouldn't suggest that either, but like putting a little bit into investing in yourself because the highest return on investment, when you have, uh, in my opinion, under, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, most of the time is going to be investments in yourself and in your own business. So like, you taking maybe a couple thousand bucks, investing in some education for yourself, you learn some new skills, some new knowledge that then you can take some of that other capital that you have, you know, maybe another 10 or 12,000 of that, invest it in some marketing or invest it in some technology or invest it in something that you can use some of that skill that you just acquired to then, you know, gain business or gain deals or whatever you're going to, you know, acquire that knowledge through. So then you can make larger chunks of money. Like that's what my opinion is on, on doing that. Um, just because $20,000 really doesn't, isn't going to change your life if you invested it. Um, but it can, it, let me rephrase that. It won't change your life if you invest that into something that maybe makes you 10 or 12% interest. It really just won't. Um, but it will, if you invest that in yourself and you become better here so that then you're able to be a smarter, um, business, uh, a businesswoman, right? So like, that's, that's what I would, um, look at doing with that. But obviously, that's just my opinion. You're always going to be the best investment that you ever make is investing in yourself. Um, I mean, for me, I I invest, Pace invests more uh, in him, himself, but I invest, you know, anywhere from about forty to 50000 a year. And I have a personal coach that I'm in line to coach with. Like, he won't even take me on yet because he has a backlog of clients. But I start with him next year at, in January, and he's eighty thousand a year for one coach. That's one coach, eighty grand a year, and that's to pay half of that up front, and then it's monthly payments. Um, but that didn't start that way. Like I started buying like little mini courses for five hundred bucks, thousand bucks, like you know, joining mentorship groups. Like that's how how I started. But the more that you invest up here, the more that your income can grow. Because the better you become, the better you can do. And the better you're going to be able to make money. Because I think a lot of people, um, people are better off making more money than just trying to reduce some expenses. Like cutting out drinking Starbucks every day. And I do drink Starbucks almost every day. Like me and my girlfriend, like I spend uh, an ungodly amount of money on Starbucks probably every month. Like it's like $20 a day at least. And it's not going to be the end of the world. But like, obviously, if you have like some ridiculous habits that are literally just destroying you financially, yes, change those habits. But like, you know, cutting out a $4, $5 coffee every day when you're, you know, looking at trying to become a millionaire, 
It's like, that's not really going to be the thing. Like you need to go figure out how to make more money. That's what you have to do. It's like find a side hustle or find other ways to increase your skills and increase the opportunities of monetization in your life. Like that's what you want to be doing. Um, that's, that's my thoughts. <laughs> Bracken Budge says, Linda Vargas, I may be willing to lend some money at 18%. That's what I lend at is 18%. I'm the guy you call when no one else is answering and you need the money. I don't lend at uh, really cheap rates. <laughs> you call me when you need something closed and uh, need something to be lended on, not when you need a good deal on your uh, lend, lend uh, interest rate. <laughs> Uh, Rob Robbins, Cody, what do you think about a short-term 20 K investment that can help grow your bank account? So like if, if it's 20,000 and you have a lot more thousands than that, sure. Like, like I have, a, um, I have five different notes out on properties that I've lent on for people. And the smallest one is actually, um, for a family member of mine, they have just a, you know, I, I lent the money on their down payment for a fix and flip they're doing. And it was like, like 15 or 16,000, but like, that's not my only 15 or 16 grand. Like I just, it's like, I lent that because one, it's a family member and two, it's like, it's still like a decent return and you know, it's helping them out more than really me. Like I'm not that excited about that, but Rob, like the challenge is, it's just like just lending 20 grand, even if you're getting, you know, 12% on that. It's like you're getting $200 a month while that money's working. So it's like, it's just not enough. That's really going to make such a big difference. Um, that's, that's the main, uh, the main thing. Fernando, you, it's Fernando Garcia says you don't have a spending problem. You have an income problem quote by Grant Crone. That's it. You know, you gotta, uh, just got to make more money. And I know sometimes like I used to get like triggered when I'd hear people tell me that, like, especially when I was like earlier on in my entrepreneurial journey and there's things that I wanted and like places and things I wanted to invest in and like get, get to. And I had, you know, uh, I was at this point where, you know, you, you're like frustrated when you're like, yes, I know I should make more money, but I'm not making more money right now. And it's like frustrating. So like I get where, you know, maybe someone listening right now is like, well, yeah, it sounds good, Cody, but like, I'm not there. All of these things happen, you know, brick by brick. You, br you build a foundation, you lay a brick, then you lay another brick, then you lay another brick. Like that's, that's how you, you start your financial successes in life. And, you know, you investing in yourself is what's going to allow you to move ahead faster so that you can get to where you want to go faster. And even when you invest in yourself, like there's still a lot of practice that comes from it. Like I'm in mentorships now where like I've been learning certain aspects of things from the groups that I'm in that it's taken me six months or a year to actually finally understand some of the concepts because that's just education. Like it doesn't like not overnight. Do you just know everything about the thing that you're doing? But, you know, learn the more you learn and something that you can make chunks of money with, like the better off you're going to be. Um, so restore it. Don't junk. It says I have $1,000 to lend. I need to grow that one K up. Like, I mean, I don't know what you're doing. 
uh, restore it, don't junk it. I don't know. Like, can you take that thousand dollar? I don't know. Um, buy some like used furniture, resell it for more money. Like just find ways to like flip that and like just and, like, to grow it. Like there's lots of things that you can do. Corey says, try paying yourself every day what you would pay for Starbucks for a month and watch your money grow. That's facts for, for some people. Um, I still invest like for me, I live off of personally 10% or less of what I make. So I will buy all the Starbucks, all the Starbucks that I want. Cause I don't, I'm, I'm not a splurger or big spender with money. Um, Martin says, what would you do with a million dollars going into the next 18 months? I would be watching for great deals. So I would be watching in your market for what great deals are. Like me personally, I'm saving up as much cash as I can possibly have so that I could take advantage of great deals and find great discounts on deals. So, you know, whether those are going to be rentals, whether those are going to be creative finance deals, I am open for all the deals where I am making an excellent return. Like I want to be getting deals where I'm making 15, 18, 20% um, on my money with the cash that I'm saving. Cause this is the time where there's going to be people over leveraged. This is going to be the time where people don't have reserves. This is going to be the time when people need money. And I want to be the guy that people are calling when they say, Hey, I need a loan Cody and I'll pay you 18 or 20% on your money um, on this deal. And I will say, yes, call me anytime and let's do it. Um, so I would be looking for high interest, you know, lending opportunities. Obviously you could lend at like 12%, which is a great return. Um, you know, 10 to 12% is great to be able to lend at. Like for me, I'm saving up my cash to be able to lend at atrocious interest rates and buy great deals that are just stupid, good deals. Like that's, that's what I'm personally doing. Um, some people, Sorry, gang, there's a spider that just crawled on my table here. All right, I'm back. Um, but that's what I'm doing. Some people are, you know, they're spending money uh, or saving money to buy, you know, stocks at a discount. I mean, it seems like most, you know, a lot of stocks are down 15, 20, 25, 30% since the beginning of the year. So maybe buy stocks. I don't know stocks, so I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to invest and lend in real estate. Um, that's what I'm going to be doing. Let's see. Yep. Emily says out earning your problems is the best way to go always. So there's a caveat to that is like, don't be stupid and like just raising your expenses as you're making more money. That's one of the, the things that I think people are stupid to do is like they make, you know, say you're making four or $5,000 a month and you're spending 3000 a month and your monthly expenses are 3,500 or you're spending four, like all of it. And then now you go to making eight, nine, $10,000 a month. And then people go and raise their expenses to now seven, 8,000 a month. That's like the way to, that's the way to continue to be poor and live paycheck to paycheck. So it's like, if your living expenses are 4,000 a month, like my personal living expenses are only seven grand a month. And it's actually less. If you take out like my one luxury car, like my living expenses go down to under five grand a month. And 
I can continue. You can raise your living expenses every time that you start making more money, but it 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 inhibit you know prohibits you from investing more money and being able to get your money growing and creating acceleration with the money that you're investing. So, um, where there is truth to that, Emily, that out earning your problems is the best way. It's definitely true. Go out earn it, but then don't go and raise your expenses when you have then out earned it um, to that next level, like waiting, you know, giving it time to like save up money, put money in reserves, put money away to invest, like, you know, put money into your business like that. That's what I'd be doing. Uh, let, let's hit, you know, a couple quick, couple other quick questions here um, before we wrap up because we already, wow, we've already been here for an hour, guys. Let's see. All right. <laughs> Someone said, Dom says, don't kill the spider, fam. I don't think I killed it. I just kind of flung it off my table over here. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Give me two more good questions before we wrap. And yes, Pace is out of town. Uh, he's in Utah with his family visiting for the 4th of July weekend. Yeah, boy, just decided to stay home because I wanted to work this weekend and be at home. My usual thought is as soon as I see any type of bug inside my house is burn the house down. We're moving. We're putting the house up for sale. Oh. <laughs> uh. Love it. Doms says, this is a fire live stream. Thank you for the gems. Thank you. You know, that that's all I can hope for. I, I really want to, um, you know, bring knowledge of things that I've learned. And like I, the reason I could say it's stupid to, you know, increase your expenses every time you start making more money is because I was the stupid guy that did that in my early 20s. And it didn't work out well for me. <laughs> so that's a... Uh, just a nugget there. Take it with take it uh, with what you know. Take it with a grain of salt. Love this. Tony says kept mine at like three k and spend the rest reinvesting in my business. I love that. And so so that's something that like like yes like eventually it's like yeah raising your lifestyle because like the whole like the goal of like why we're building these businesses is to create a better lifestyle right. So it's like progressively like increasing it um you know is okay but like not getting too crazy and like you know living upwards of the top of your income because then you don't have as much play capital to be able to invest into things for your business so it's just super important charita says would be a millionaire if i only knew what i knew now well the great news is the best time to start is now the best, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? You know, 25 years ago. The next best time is right now. So, you know, just making those changes, doing it brick by brick. You could do it quick. Within literally, you know, within a few years, I became a multimillionaire through real estate. It can happen fast. It wasn't easy. It was very hard. It was painful. And I lived below my means. All my friends lived in cool places. And we're doing a lot of cool shit the years I was coming up and spending no money on anything besides growing my business. So that's, uh, you know, we all have choices. 
when it's just what choice are you going to make? Uh, I'm going to take this as my last question here. Dorian says, Cody, where are you keeping your money while you're saving it? I know not a bank. So um, I had been keeping some money in crypto. I'd, I'd moved it out, thankfully, before um, you know the markets, ta markets tanked over there. Um, and I do actually have a majority of my cash in the bank because I want it very liquid. I do have it. And some people, this is going to go over their heads and I'm sorry, but I do have um, a decent chunk of cash and whole life insurance, infinite like uh, banking policies that are around like the infinite banking concept um, that some people might know. Um, so I do have some there, but I do have a lot of cash in the bank right now. And some people are going to say, well, inflation's eating away at that. Well, something that I have learned is uh, Warren Buffett had, I don't know if it's still right this moment, but um, within the last couple months has moved almost 25% of all Berkshire Hathaway assets into cash. And one thing I do know is Warren Buffett is smarter than me and he has been investing significantly longer than me. And if I know that he is putting that much cash aside, it means that there is opportunities to come. And I know if he is not worried about billions losing a little bit to inflation, I know my hundreds of thousands in cash are is going to be okay losing a little bit to inflation because of the opportunities that I have. So just my two cents on that. Um, you know, but that's, that's what uh, I'm doing. Wow. A lot of people here are doing infinite banking. That's super cool. I love that. I just, uh, I, I paid off uh, one of my cars. I paid off my Jeep using the, uh, um, Nelson Nash becoming your own bank. Um, anybody that doesn't know what that is, go on Amazon. Um, you could buy the book called becoming your own bank, um, by Nelson Nash. There's another great book called what would the Rockefellers do? Um, I actually have, this is very cheesy, but I'm going to show you guys. So Something else that I'm investing in and the people that are listening to this on the recording are going to be like, well, I don't see it because you're listening to the recording. So sorry for you. But I actually am starting to invest in um, art uh, in, in like uh, memorabilia. Hist history memorabilia is like another alternative asset class. So I just bought this. So this is a stock for a railroad company that John D. Rockefeller owned with, and it has his signature on the stock. Still. Back a very long time ago when this dude was still alive. So also uh, putting some, you know, cash into some history memorabilia and things like that stuff that I think is cool and uh, will hold value and grow and value over time as it becomes harder and more rare to find pieces like that. So that's something else that uh, I'm doing. I have, I have one from JP Morgan as well sitting on the um, side. So that's, uh, so Sarita says, is that similar to an NFT? Uh, no. <laughs> um, so, Collecting some stuff like that, you know, things that there's, uh, uh, you know, there's going to be historical value in that, you know, long, long term. So just 
Find, finding things that have value. Um, somebody said, oh, Robin Hurt says that book name again. Um, so what would the Rockefellers do? So homie over here, John Rockefeller that, that I showed you there. Just for fun, just because I'm having fun, guys. Um, here is, this is uh, JP Morgan. And uh, I have also by him for another railroad company, a stock that has his signature on. Kind of hard to see, but yeah. Can't be worth that much if you leave it on the floor. Your boy doesn't do manual labor, so the handyman hasn't came to hang it on the wall yet. I just got it delivered. So, Eduardo, talk your shit, but I also leave nice watches on the floor. Does that mean they're worthless? Get that negative energy out of my life. Yep, Judy, I love how the Rockefeller generation have continued to contribute new bank tips for the family to keep their wealth going. Smart AF. Yep. Um, a lot of great concepts there. What would the Rockefellers do? And then Nelson Nash, uh, Becoming Your Own Bank. Those are those are great books. Super cool. Awesome, awesome. All right, guys. Well, I hope all of you had an amazing Sunday. Precious metals, yes. I have some. I have silver. I do have silver, and that's uh, that's about it. So, I hope uh, everyone had an amazing Sunday. Tomorrow, uh, have an amazing July Fourth. If you have the day off, you know, do some side hustle work tomorrow. Um, get ahead. Take that time. If you're just spending the time with the family or you're on vacation, have a have a amazing time. And we look forward to seeing you. We'll see you back next Sunday um, with Pace and myself. He will be back in town. Had a lot of fun with you guys tonight. Hope you enjoyed it. Got some good nuggets. And have an amazing week, everybody. Always fun to be with you. Oh.